Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat, tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. I am absolutely thrilled to announce that in the not-too-distant future, we have two events and there is something for everyone. Now, first up on the docket, we have our 12th annual Plant Stock Weekend Celebration. This is going to be a virtual event and it is incredibly affordable. I hope that you'll join us. We have Dr. Michael Greger speaking to us all about his new book, How Not to Age. And the whole theme of this year's plant stock is coming together around food. And in that spirit, we have assembled the most insane list of Brockstar chefs that you can imagine. We've got Max LaManna, who's an award-winning author, social media sensation, and incredible chef. We have got some of your tried and true favorites like Chef AJ. We have Kim Campbell. We have the other social media sensation, Carly Bodrug. We have Cameron Clements, Mrs. Plant-Based on a Budget, Tony Akamoto, the incredible registered dietitian, Desiree Nielsen, Kiki Nelson, Shane Martin, Jackie Ackerberg, Janet Verney, the list goes on. And of course, Jane and Ann Esselstyn and, and my father. Now, the other event that we have coming up in October, from October 9th to the 14th, it is our live Sedona retreat. It's a life-changing event. Highly recommend that anyone looking to take a deep dive with 80 to 90 other people in this very remote location in the austere Red Rock Mountains uh, outside Sedona, Arizona. You do not want to miss this. We've been putting these on now for close to 13 years, and this Sedona retreat is one of my absolute favorites. We're talking unlimited buffets of plant-strong food, yoga, world-class lectures, stargazing, bonfires, pickleball, and all kinds of wonderful bonding and camaraderie. All right. I hope to see you at either or both in the not-too-distant future. Whether it's Plant Stock or whether it's Sedona, for either one, simply go to plantstrong.com and then click on either 12th Annual Plant Stock or Sedona Retreat 2023. And I hope to see you at either or both. You can't go wrong. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, 
and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. I've been wanting to have today's guest on the show for several years, and finally we were able to throw out our our line and reel him in. He is a truly a whale of a celebrity, and that's in part because his name is Moby. And you may know of Moby. He's one of the greatest musicians alive, so incredibly prolific. His music is everywhere. In fact, the other night we were watching Stranger Things, and there was some of his his music. You know, in this conversation today, we talk about some really, really basic things like, what did you have for breakfast? And why did you decide to go vegan? Um, How did you sleep last night? Two, you are a self-proclaimed reclusive misanthrope. Talk to me about that. We also talk about a new project that Moby has launched with his sidekick, Lindsay Hicks, and it is a podcast called Moby Pod, where they talk about all kinds of things in the entertainment industry, animal rights activism, veganism, and even things like exorcism. So quite a fascinating podcast that they have created. But in delving into this conversation with Moby, I realized that he, he truly is one of the great minds in, in the world today. He is and makes himself incredibly vulnerable in a world that is angry and scared, and it was incredibly refreshing. And I, I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I have with Moby and, and Lindsay Hicks as much as I did. All right, let's take it away. Moby and Lindsay, welcome to the Plan Strong Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you guys. I'm super grateful. I Speaking presumptuously for both of us, we are really thrilled to be here. It's mm-hmm. true. He's correct. We are. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And uh, and you guys, you guys got some pretty good chemistry going on. You guys obviously recently launched uh, Moby Pod, which I want to talk to uh, about. Uh, there's lots of things I'd like to talk about today. But for starters, you guys are in LA, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's morning time there. It just broke the afternoon here where I am in Austin, Texas. So tell me, did you guys have a nice sleep last night? Uh, I will let Lindsay <laughs> answer first because her answer is probably a lot happier than mine. Okay. Well, here's what happened to me last night, if we're getting into it. We, is yeah. I, I fell asleep watching the beanie bubble. And so I had beanie dreams, but I fell asleep on the couch. And so then I had to do that horrible thing where like you wake up at like one and you have to go do the whole process. And then, so there was a break in the middle of, it wasn't, you know, a consecutive night's sleep, but it was wonderful. What The beanie dreams were great. What is, I don't even know. Is that a TV show? Beanie dreams? Oh, it's beanie. The beanie bubble is about the beanie babies craze of the nineties. And it has Zach Galifianakis um, Mm. and all these amazing people in it. And it's, it's not bad. Sarah Mm -hmm. Snook from uh, succession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's great. And I fell asleep watching it. All right. (laughs) Moby, you didn't have a great night's sleep. Uh, 
I don't think I've had a good night's sleep since I was maybe five years old. So sleep <laughs> is definitely not my strong suit. Uh, it's one of the main reasons I don't tour anymore is because I, I sleep badly when I'm home. I don't, I sleep terribly or not at all when I try to go on tour, like staying in a hotel room or whatever. I just, hmm. I just, my brain won't let me fall asleep. So last night was average which means that I woke up 15 times during the night and never slept for more than 90 minutes straight. Wow. That, um, so that does, I mean, that sounds, <clears throat> that sounds rough. And I'm wondering like, and obviously throughout your life, you've, 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 you've medicated with drugs and alcohol. Do you do ambient or any of these sleeping drugs to help you sleep or you stay away from those? I have a sleeping drug. I, I, there's Lunesta, or I think it's called Zopiclone in the rest of the world. That to me is the drug that I take once or twice a year if I desperately need it. Like if I'm in New York or if I'm staying in a hotel and I absolutely have to sleep, I will take one of those. And it's the ascent. It basically, it's like some robot monster takes my brain and wrestles it into sleep. Like it's a very strange phenomena to feel like this external thing is actually manipulating my brain and forcing it to sleep. So it's disconcerting, but it works. Whereas the rest of the time, I just sort of make peace with the fact that I don't know why, but I have never in my entire life slept through the night like i guess i've even when i was a teenager i always slept like a 90 year old man so the the only half-assed quasi theory i have is that maybe anthropologically when we lived in caves and we had these you know groups of like 10 20 30 40 people in our tribe maybe there was the one person whose job was constant vigilance mm. And maybe on a, some, some hereditary level, I have inherited the constant vigilance because I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm constant. I'm never really in a deep sleep, and I never really sleep for very long. Mm. You know, one of the things I find so impressive about that <clears throat> is that you don't get a great night's sleep, and you still are able to be so incredibly creative with all your ventures and endeavors. I mean, Lindsay, that you must hear about his not so great night's sleep. And you, I mean, do you find yourself, do you find yourself dozing off during the day at all? Or are you like, go, 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 go. Uh, that's the thing. I never get tired, but I, I take that back every now and then in the middle of the day, I'm hit with this weird, fascinating exhaustion. And I go to sleep for five minutes. Mm. So maybe I'm related to Ben Franklin or something. I don't know. But it's like it's definitely uh, when I hear about people who sleep well or sleep normally like Lindsay and I'm assuming you and I'm assuming the vast majority of people on the planet, like I'm just sort of fascinated at what that would be like. Because it's to me, it's such a, a foreign concept to put your head down at 10 p.m., sleep for seven or eight hours and wake up because I've. I don't think I've ever in my entire life done that. Yeah. Well, I find sleep to be such a fascinating subject, especially for whatever reason in the last 10, 15 years, it seems like with all the screens and so much, everything that we have going on that people's sleep is really suffering quite substantially. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, um, you want to hear a slightly funny sleep, minor sleep anecdote, and maybe it's not even that interesting or funny, but I, so about 15 or so years ago, uh, there was a movie released called The Science of Sleep. And I was so excited to go see it because I thought it was going to be a documentary about what was involved in sleep, like what neurochemicals were involved, the neurotransmitters, like MRIs and fMRIs and all these things about sleep. Turns out it had nothing to do with sleep. It was a Michelle Gondry movie about relationships in France. Um, <laughs> and so, but I was really like, I, I saw the title on my local theater in New York and I was like, oh, I'm so excited to go see this documentary about sleep. And it had nothing to do with sleep. Similar to when I first moved to LA, I went on a date with a woman and I was so excited because she worked on the show Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. And I assumed Shark Tank was a show about sharks. And so I was so excited to talk to her and be like, wow, have you gone on location? Have you been in an underwater cage? Like, tell me more about sharks. And she very quickly said, actually, you're just an ignorant person who knows nothing shark tank has nothing to do with sharks at which point i was like well might as well just go home and not go on the date <laughs> uh if you do want to read a good book matthew walker has a book why we sleep that is uh ex exceptional um <clears throat> so are you guys breakfast people have you had breakfast yet since it's 10 a.m oh are you i mean it's almost lunchtime <laughs> okay okay well did you have breakfast yeah i mean i Lindsay and i both wake up well you know Lindsay lives about a mile away she wakes up early but not surprisingly because i am a very old man and a regular old man's body i wake up between four and five so i can't remember the last time i had breakfast after the sun had come up wow and what do you usually have you want to yeah. Lindsay would and you're Lindsay's much more normal, but still, by most people's standards, kind of an early riser. Well, yeah, I wake up. I have an alarm set for 6.30 every morning. Just weekends, weekdays, all the time, 6.30. Mostly because I have Bagel, the tiny dog, um, but and she likes to get out early. Um, but also because I feel like I need that time in the morning, like my quiet time before the day really starts to to get my head on straight and to go for a long walk and, you know, um, do all of that stuff, play Wordle and send my scores to all my friends. Mm. Um, but did you get, you know, did you do the Wordle from yesterday? Yesterday's Wordle. Yeah. Yes, I did do yesterday. I, I, I also <laughs> did today's. I do them. I do them every day. Uh -huh. Yesterday. I'm trying to remember what it was. Cause I always do it before I go to bed. And, right. uh, what was it anyway? It was kind of tricky. Um, yeah. So well, you usually get it six tries. We've gone pretty deep in that. Like we're on a text thread with a bunch of friends where I can't even count the number of word related games. I mean, really, maybe this is something we should keep private because it's, it's so very nerdy. <laughs> like it's wordle, it's click word, it's square word, it's global. Connections is one? a new one. We've been doing connections. connections. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's, it's very deep. If there's a word, there's game, also that timeline quiz. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. Well, because this is the Plan Strong podcast, I'd love to know what exactly, uh, if you guys can remember, what you had for breakfast. I'm very consistent. Yeah, I'm, I, so I 
will happily answer with the caveat slash understanding that my answer is not simple. And I understand if you want to sort of truncate it for time, because I feel like I could, in just answering that question, ramble on for like the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Well, okay. How about a truncated version? Okay. So almost every morning, the first thing I do is I make a, a smoothie and my smoothie I, I had we had um Dr. Christy Funk on the podcast recently. We haven't aired it yet, but uh, she and I battled morning smoothies. Mm. Um, and I presumptuously <laughs> think mine might be a little bit more involved than hers. So you ready? I'll try and keep this brief. It's got broccoli, red cabbage, kale, fresh ginger, fresh turmeric, carrots, apple, orange with the peel, DHA oil, flaxseed, chia seed, bananas blueberries strawberries cherries blackberries dark black grapes red grapes zinc b12 calcium and filter uh, triple filtered as os- reverse osmosis water <gasps> okay that's that imp- truncated that's just part one <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the beginning of the day then Inspired by our friends in the Shire, the Hobbits, I have a second breakfast, which is Ezekiel seeded bread with apple butter and walnut butter and organic white tea. So we could discuss and deconstruct why everything is in the smoothie, et cetera. But that's my that's my my daily breakfast and second breakfast. <clears throat> Take that, uh, Dr. Christy Funk. That's that's impressive. Yeah, and Christy Funk is impressive too. She Lindsay, really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lindsay, what did you have? Well, I haven't. All I've had this morning is like some pistachios, because um, <laughs> I, I really love them. The shelled pistachios make me feel like I'm some sort of like ancient queen because it's like somebody shelled all of these pistachios, and I can just buy a bag of them with no shells on. I'm still impressed by that. Um, so I always have a bunch of those in there cause it makes me feel so fancy. Um, but I also, I usually, I, I thought I was allergic to coconut until very recently when I had something with coconut in it and then I didn't feel sick. And I was like, Oh my God, my world is opening up because all of the best stuff is coconut. Um, or ca- I mean, you know, the coconut stuff is a world I've been missing out on. So now I was getting the, um, the like almond yogurt, Mm -hmm. um, the like forager, but now I'm doing coconut yogurt and it's so delicious with, um, with raw walnuts and blueberries and blackberries and raspberries and like a, like a ground flax seed on top. And it is very delicious. Well, good. It sounds like you and Moby complement each other very nicely with your breakfast. I mean, I don't do the whole smoothie thing because I find it to be so very effortful. Um, oh, it's a lot of effort. Yeah. It's a lot of effort. Um, and, you know, I also have to feed the dog and she's got a whole process too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but one day, one day, I think I'll be able to set aside the the uh, mental and physical energy it takes to be as healthy as Moby is in the morning. So um, bagel, bagel, is bagel your dog, Lindsay, or your dog, Moby? Yes. She's right here. Sleeping yeah, on Lindsay's the thing. bagels mom and I'm bagels litter maid. Uh, <laughs> and and is is if if bagel was to be a type of bagel, what kind of bagel would he be? 
or she? Um, possibly the queen of all bagels, the ur-bagel, the, the bagel that lives outside of time and space and governs its all existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys. She's like the bagel from everything, everywhere, all at once. She's yeah. like the contained power of the universe. Wow. Uh, w- w- tell me, what was the attraction to bagel? How did you, did you find bagel? Was it a rescue? How did you get bagel? She was a rescue. She was, well, so uh, it's very long story, but basically a friend of mine, I was having a very hard time finding a foster that fit my certain situation at the time where I had some other dogs in the house. And a friend of mine was, is very pro Craigslist for dogs. And I, because I was trying to go through the proper rescues because I believe that they do amazing work. I wanted to support them and I still do. And I, I love all the work that um, these rescues do for the animals. Um, And I probably will foster at some point, but anyway, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was looking to foster, couldn't find one friend of mine said the dogs that suffer the most are the ones that are on Craigslist that are being, you know, adopted out on Craigslist because there's no vetting usually, and it can be a very scary situation for them. And then this friend sent me bagels post. And so then I'm in this headspace of thinking of all of the horrible things that could happen to this adorable tiny puppy. And this post itself was very, very suspect and bizarre. And I was like, okay, well now I just have to go look and make sure that this little puppy is okay. If she's okay, then I will leave her. But if it seems as sus as it looks, I have to take this puppy which I wasn't in the market to fully get a dog, but then I saw this, I saw her and I was like, this is okay. So I go there and it was a mess. Like the people just were, I, I, they were like pacing in this really bizarre way. And like, there were people watching. It was very, very strange. And um, she was just limp in their arms, this little puppy just like Mm. could hardly lift her head up. She was dirty. Um, And I was like, okay, I have to take the puppy. So I took her, took her to the vet. She had seven kinds of parasites. She was very, very sick. She hadn't properly digested food in way too long. I kind of, they were like, she may not make it. Don't get attached. Um, But she did. I got her on all the medicine necessary. I took amazing care of her. I was like a crazy kind of like ultimate helicopter dog puppy parent. And she came, she came out of it and now she's the happiest, healthiest little puppy ever. Was she named bagel? Was she named bagel or why, why did you name her bagel? Well, first of all, I, I waited a while to name her. There were, I was living with two other dogs in the house at the time. And so I wanted to find a name that sounded nothing like the other two dogs' names so that they wouldn't get confused. So I was working with a couple of specific sounds. And then once I spent time with her and saw her when she's all curled up in a little, she kind of is in this little ball. She looks like a little bagel. Uh. And so I, and I also thought she looked a little bit like Candace Bergen. So her full name is Candace Bergen Bagel. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice. Speaking yeah, of names, names Moby. How did you get your name? I just think it is the best name. It's awesome. Well, so in the world of, as you know, in the world of music, most people who have oddball names have picked their own oddball name, like Sting or Bono or Madonna or whomever. In my case, uh, I'm related to Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. Hmm. And my parents gave me the full name Richard Melville Hall I believe the third or the fourth before I was born. 
And because I have uncles named, you know, uncles, great uncles named Richard and Richard was short for Moby Dick. So it was like all tied into like the Melville relation. And then I was born uh, September 11th, 1965 in Harlem, New York. And about 10 minutes after I was born, my mother looked at me and said, wow, Richard Melville Hall III <laughs> is an incredibly grown-up name for this tiny little like Uncle Fester Elmer Fudd of a baby. <laughs> and my dad, as a joke, said, well, let's call him Moby. And I really think their intent was for me to be called Moby for maybe like a week. And now 57 years later, I'm still saddled with my infant joke nickname. And you probably wouldn't have it any other way. Well, so here's where I'm going to try and also truncate this because I <laughs> could ramble on about this way too long. So Moby Dick, as far as being named after a literary character, the only other name I could think of that would be great would be like Prince Mishkin from Dostoevsky's The Idiot. But like the whale Moby Dick on an allegorical level, what Moby Dick represents in the book is so remarkable. It's, you know, it's one of the reasons why Moby Dick is considered like one of the first great works of modern or even postmodern fiction is it's existential. Like it looks at the human plate, like humans place in the universe and Melville set up this allegory where you have Ahab representing controlling, dogmatic, uptight, angry humans who are baffled by their place in the universe and furious that the universe doesn't reflect them, that the universe is not anthropomorphized. Mm. And then you have Moby Dick representing the vast, unknowable, chaotic forces of the universe. I mean, there's even a soliloquy right in the middle of the book when Ahab spells this out so clearly like he basically says that as humans we're separated from objective understanding of the universe and all he wants to do is tear that down and spit in the face of god and rip away this sort of facade and so he's ultimately not surprisingly destroyed by moby dick because he's uptight humanity confronted with the vast unknowable forces of the universe so that's my long-winded way of saying if I'm going to be named after anything, I love being named after the vast, unknowable, chaotic, potentially even destructive forces of the universe. Wow. <clears throat> so, Lindsay, are these like some of the conversations that you and Moby, ha Moby have on the uh, the Moby pod? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, you know, I've a few at the be early in the pandemic Moby and I had a conversation and eventually came to the decision that um I would work with him and run little walnut the his production company um and also do you know produce music videos and anything that came up really that seemed creative and like it helped the world to be a better place as far as getting more people to be aware or even try plant-based lifestyles to understand the effect that animal agriculture has on the planet to make decisions that, you know, are easier on the climate reality that we're currently living in um, and to help other people that want to do the same thing. That's what we wanted to do with the production company and with everything else that we might do. Mm -hmm. And when we were 
you know, at, we, I've always thought that Moby would have, would be amazing in a podcast. And it's something that we had kind of lightly discussed and we weren't really sure how it would kind of manifest. And, you know, we tried some things out, some more like niche ideas and eventually decided that it would be great to do a podcast, to produce a podcast with Moby that was super general where he could go on tangents just like that one and where he could talk about whatever mattered to him and with whoever he thought had an outlook or perspective that could kind of offer something valuable to the kind of greater consciousness um, or, you know, whoever feels like listening. So, so we started the MobyPod journey and, you know, I think Moby's perspective is so valuable. Um, and I think these conversations that we're having are fun and meaningful and silly and, you know, highlight human creativity, which I believe is such a, a, a hugely important part of, of existence and also, you know, improves quality of life to the point where people can try a plant-based lifestyle if they hadn't before, um, if they're feeling creatively fulfilled. So that was that. Is, so, so to answer your question, yes. That is a uh, kind of what what Moby is all about, and a lot of what you hear on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I've listened to, listened to several episodes and have enjoyed them immensely. And it is such a wide variety of subject matter and mm -hmm. pontificating, uh, and always entertaining. Um, but you just mentioned, you know, plant based, trying to make more people aware of plant based uh, animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and the kind of the, you know, the devastating consequences of animal agriculture. Uh, I'd love to hear from both of you. And, and, and I know Moby, there's a whole, you know, animated, uh, wonderful short story, like why you, why you're a vegan, but if you both could share with my audience that probably doesn't know, I think that would be great. Maybe the truncated version. Sure. So basically like almost everybody apart from walking phoenix i grew up eating garbage you know i loved junk food i loved burger king i loved mcdonald's i loved pepperoni pizza i loved steakums like i was you know poor white trash in the suburbs and i ate any garbage junk food i could get my hands on and the paradox was i also loved animals you know we had a house filled when i was growing up a house filled with rescued animals from dogs, cats, lab rats, mice, lizards, everything. And I loved these animals unconditionally, but that's and, and, central. And Moby, and, and Moby if, I, if I can just like chime in here. So, but whose idea was it to have all these crazy animals in the house? Was that, was that you or your mom or your dad or? I think, well, my dad died when I was two. So I think it was just our family, like, like, cause my aunts and uncles were the same, you know, like my aunt, Anne and uncle Joseph, they had cats, dogs, healthy chickens who were never killed. Like there was mm -hmm. like just everybody in my family had lots and lots of animals around. So it, it was just one of those aspects of my family that was never questioned. Like, oh, if you have a house, you're going to fill it with weird rescued animals, you know, and the idea of, I didn't know that pet stores sold pets or companion animals until I was in my thirties. Cause I just, mm -hmm. I did, I had never met anyone who bought an animal. Animals were always rescued. Uh, so yeah, growing up with that weird paradox of loving animals, finding so much comfort 
and companionship in animals, but also eating them. And then when I was 19, I had my Saul on the Damascus, on the road to Damascus moment where I realized, oh, I love the cats and the dogs I'm surrounded by. Why am I actively contributing to the suffering and death of other sentient beings? And that was 1984. And I went vegetarian then and then went vegan in 1987 because I realized that, you know, and I'm stating the obvious for all of us, but that animals who are producing dairy and eggs more than the animals who are being killed, because at least the animals who are being killed have an end to their suffering. You know, like the dairy cows and the, you know, the laying hens, et cetera, are suffering, in my mind, are suffering more. Like if I was a cow, I'd much rather be killed quickly and get it over with than be locked in a metal pen and milked and have my children stolen from me on a regular basis. So 1987, I went vegan. And it's it's the only thing that is truly important to me is working to move the needle away from this current, horrifying, destructive, barbaric system. Well, and you said, you have said, Moby, that your number one job right now is to, you know, basically animal rights and uh, everything around that. And your, your, your refuge is music. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's basically how I feel that my job, my purpose, my meaning is trying to get trying to trying to do whatever I can with within my power to create a world where animals are not subjected to the will of humans. You know, I truly believe every animal is an individual. Every animal is sentient. Every animal wants to live their own life according to their own will. And obviously there's some sort of like, we'll call them like gray area middles. Like for example, lovely phenomenal bagel, the dog, like it's bagels will to live with Lindsay. It's bagels will to hang out with me and play games like, and you know, just run around and be ridiculous. Like that's bagel is living a life of her own volition. It just happens to involve humans. Whereas to state the obvious, the vast majority of animals kind of want nothing to do with us. And that's their God given right to live their lives according to their will. And I will do whatever I can with whatever resources I have to try and further that goal and get to that place where like sentient autonomous animals can just live their own lives. Can you, so, and to show your commitment, and I don't know if this is accurate, accurate or not, but could you share with, with me and the audience, some of your tattoos and what they mean? Oh, sure. Well, I have a uh, vegan for life on my neck. And then next to that, I have, a tattoo that says protect the innocent, defend the vulnerable. And then I have animal rights in big letters on my arms. Um, I have a little uh, circle V standing for vegan on my face. Um, I have thou shalt not kill on the back of my neck. Cause that's a pretty straightforward statement that somehow religious people seem to pervert and not understand. So and when the pandemic hit, I was kind of sad for many reasons, but one of which was I had to stop getting vegan tattoos on my face. So I'm hopefully at some point, <laughs> you'll find a good vegan tattoo artist who can continue 
covering me with vegan tattoos. Mm. So where, where would you like the next one to be? Uh, good question. I'm sort of running out of real estate, so I'm, <laughs> I don't quite know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Lindsay, do you have any tattoos? I do. I do, but none are really related to, to animal rights, but yeah. I do have some, you know, dinosaur. I have the, the tree star from land before time on my arm, Yeah, which a lot of people apparently don't know land before time, but yeah, you know, and so, so, so Moby, Moby went, uh, went vegan in 1987. Was it November or October of 1987, Moby? Yeah, basically, what, what I, what I yeah. claim as my vegan anniversary was Thanksgiving 1987. Um, I mean, I remember the last time I had dairy, I was at a rehearsal space in lower Manhattan in 1987. And I walked around the corner and I got a piece of cheese pizza and I bit into it. And I was like, nope, I'm done. And so, yeah, that was... 36 years ago and that was the you know i've been vegan ever since yeah fantastic i've i've been vegan since uh january of 1987 so you and i are kind of uh right right about the same time okay, were you so in that texas that, when you went oh sorry oh, i was gonna say so that means that you gene bauer and i i believe possibly and geezer butler from black sabbath are possibly the people on the planet who've been vegan the longest maybe Joaquin uh, uh, Phoenix, but um, yeah, we can we sh we should have a cage match in battle. Like who's the last vegan? <laughs> yeah. You can do your, your cage match right after uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. So you can do like a kind of yeah. double feature cage match. Yeah. What about Natalie Portman? I know she's she's uh, been vegan for a while. Uh, I don't actually. I haven't talked to her in a while, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So so Lindsay, when when did you go uh, plant based? You say well, I vegan. You guys, uh, I'm, I'm, it sounds Moby. You use the term, I think, vegan. How about you, Lindsay? I go, I go back and forth. I, I tend to people really don't respond well to the word vegan sometimes, and so I'll use plant based as a kind of gentler term. Though I don't know that it actually is. I know I'm probably, you know. I think both are wonderful terms and I use them, uh, you know, alternatively. Um, I, I went vegan in 2005. Um, but I was in Texas too. I was in San Marcos, Texas when I went, when I went vegan, which was a very bizarre place to go vegan because people really did not understand it. I mean, Rip, were you in Texas when you went vegan in 1987? Yeah, I went to the University of Texas at Austin for for college, and as soon as I graduated and I was off the athletic training table, I uh, I went I went went one hundred percent plant based. So yes, here in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I mean, and Austin is a great place to decide to go vegan, even in two thousand and five, um, because you know San Marcos is just half an hour away. Um, but it still was hard. And my family did not understand it. They were like, uh, vegan, do you eat chicken? What's under, I don't understand. Um, and they still kind of weirdly, you know, uh, but now all of their doctors have told them to go vegan, which I think is amazing and mm. shocking. Um, because you know, heart issues of anyway. Um, but, but yeah, it was 2005 and it was because I was look, I, for some reason was having an insomnia moment, which I had in college, don't have any more really. Um, and I found the PETA website and had no, it had never occurred to me 
that there was suffering in animal agriculture. Mm. As a 21-year-old in Texas, it had never occurred to me the suffering that happened because I had kind of bought this idea that all the farms were tiny little sweet farms where, you know, the cows just die naturally. Like I just had bought the story. I bought the tale for such a long time. And once I kind of looked into it and saw these investigations and my mind kind of opened up to like, Oh my God, I've been lied to. There's so much suffering in this industry. And so it was really just the, the kind of, I I couldn't, I couldn't eat uh, anything that, came from something that had suffered, um, or had caused, had caused such suffering. So I, I stopped eating meat at that point. Mm -hmm. Very, very nice. Um, Moby, you, you kind of refer to yourself or you have, I don't know how you feel now as a reclusive uh, misanthrope. (laughs) Um, do you, is that something, have you been like that? for a long period of time always what are your thoughts on that well so i stopped drinking and doing drugs about 15 years ago and pre-sobriety i was compulsively social you know when i lived in new york and i was drinking and doing drugs the only nights i didn't go out to drink and do drugs were the nights where i was too hungover to go out and drink and do drugs so i was out every single night and Then I got sober and I realized, huh, like my priorities have shifted. I'm more interested in health. I'm more interested in spirituality. I'm more interested in activism. And it's misanthropy. Being a misanthrope is a little bit of a tricky thing to talk about because, for example, I will occasionally see someone on social media post like, oh, vegans don't like animals more than humans. We just like animals equally as humans. I'm like, well, no, actually I like animals more. Uh, (laughs) I, if I'm being honest, like I love 10 people in my life a lot. I really think empirically, and this is a very dangerous thing to say, so maybe I shouldn't even say it, but that the world would clearly be better off if humans had never existed. Like we are a terrible species, uh, present company may be excluded hopefully, but you know, you look at the consequences of humanity, whether it's microplastics or climate change or deforestation or a trillion animals being killed every year. I personally wouldn't mind if someone flipped the switch and removed humanity from the planet because I just don't see us. I see us on mass cumulatively being a, a remarkable, terrible force for for bad. Well, yeah, it's. Um... Yeah, we are a bit of a plague on the planet. No, no, no doubt about it. Do you, um, how do you reconcile that? And knowing that the, that the world is so, I think, as you've said, it's so horrifically broken. How do you find happiness? And how do you kind of make your way through the day? Like, what's your mentality? Well, And I think I'm a relatively happy person, which is sort of strange given that the world is collapsing. But uh, a lot of my happiness comes from incredibly simple things, which has sort of contributed to my reclusivity. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm happy hiking 
and looking at nature. I'm happy working on music. I'm happy working on creative projects. I'm happy hanging out with my friends like Bagel and Lindsay. Uh, I'm happy researching nutrition. I'm at, you know, like so many things make me happy, but ultimately with the understanding, I mean, going back to, again, the sort of like the existential subtext of Moby Dick is humans will never understand our place in the universe. And you could argue, uh, you know, a case could be made that a lot of what we're doing individually and collectively is a response to existential bafflement. You know, the rage that people have, the fact that they go out and they, you know, destroy the environment, destroy animals, destroy each other, destroy people who have different skin or genders or what have you. Like, I think that's underneath it is just this fear and rage because everybody knows that at some point they die and we have no idea what happens after that. We don't know if our lives have meaning, significance, importance. And I just think that confusion is behind so many of our individual and collective terrible choices. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that you've, you've said that uh, at, at one point in time, you know, and still you're very you're you know, powerful and wealthy and you kind of ran in those circles. And now you obviously don't like to, to run in those circles and you don't particularly like what these very wealthy, let's just say billionaires are doing with their power and their wealth. Um, it's kind of mis misplaced and misguided. Um, what would you, and I know you did a post on Instagram, how would you prefer that people use their power and their wealth? Wow. I mean, it's on one hand, there's this sort of mild mannered part of me that's like, oh, well, I don't want to be so presumptuous as to tell people what to do. But when the world is collapsing, Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a genius to see that like the people with all the money in the world should maybe not be going on vacation, should maybe not be buying Twitter, should maybe not be building vanity project rocket ships. So the world needs help and the people with the resources who are not dedicated to helping in a really smart, rational, empirically supported way, it's it's kind of like the old like Nero, like fiddling while Rome burns. Like, I feel like that's what the billionaires and the millionaires and the, you know, everybody is doing. Like I, it, I don't hear. And I, like, on one hand, people have the right, I guess, to be happy, but I don't fully understand. I don't think people fully understand the world is about to collapse. Like, and I don't see anyone really, uh, like apart from a few people like Peter Kalmus, who's a climate scientist, I d just don't see people understanding the urgency of how bad things are about to get. Like people look at the news and like, oh, 36 people died on a, you know, a, a crazy fire in Hawaii, floods, fires. But somehow people think that this is just sort of information or news without understanding it's true catastrophe and i'm sorry to be such a bummer like i'd much rather talk about happy lighthearted things but i'm just a little bit baffled that everyone is still treating the apocalypse like it's information similar to you know real housewives of beverly hills or who the bachelor is going to get married to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no yeah i think it's really hard for this culture to get their brain wrapped around 
exactly what's going on. And, and you're right. I mean, I feel like, um, the planet is, is sending us some very, very clear indicators and signals that we're, we're going to go down if we don't uh, collectively do something and do something in a hurry. And, uh, you know, I think you've said something to the extent of, you know, isn't it crazy that we're the, we're the weirdos for, you know, not wanting to kill and torture and, and eat animals and, and Lindsay and you, you and Moby have both said that, uh, you know, animal agriculture represents about, I think it's the th- third leading cause of global greenhouse gas emissions. You know, everything that I've read and my research actually shows that it's number one. Um, it's, it's tricky because there's a lot of intersection, obviously, between animal agriculture and oil and gas and coal production. You know, like that's. I weirdly, I had a debate about this with Al Gore because he was talking about animal agriculture being 15% of climate change. And I, that's based on an IPCC UN report from quite a while ago. And it excludes deforestation. It also excludes the oil and gas and coal that's required to produce the feed that's required to move the water that the animals are consuming. It's, you know, the, 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 it's basically didn't look at the energy footprint and it's a, so even if it was only 15%, that's still more than every car, bus, boat, truck, plane, et cetera, on the planet. But it's quite a lot more than that. If you expand the methodology in a really accurate way. Yeah. Well, I know, in, I think it was 2009, the, uh, the World Watch Institute, part of the World Bank, they did an article called Livestock's uh, Long Shadow, and it showed it was 51%, including the life cycle and the supply chain of all the animal agriculture. Most recently, there's a gentleman named Celeste Rao, who maybe you know, don't know, he'd be a great uh, guest on your podcast. Uh, he has a, a nonprofit called Climate Healers, a uh, brilliant he used to work at Stanford and he has a report that shows it's 82% of, uh, of global greenhouse gas emissions. So, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're shouting it from the rooftops. So am I, it's like, we can do something about this starting tomorrow and it's stop eating all animal products and animal byproducts. Well, that's the thing. And, and I, I, Lindsay, I'm sorry, I'm rambling on so much, (laughs) but I will say it's, it's funny that people still treat this like an opinion because basically yeah. the world will at some, like humans will at some point stop eating animal products and stop using oil and gas because either we'll choose to do it or we'll be wiped off the face of the planet. Like they're like the future will not involve humans eating meat because we'll either figure out we can't do that or there'll just simply be no more humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it's so unfortunate that not all, that climate reality has become something so politicized that there are people that say that it's not real because it benefits you know the corporations that are lining their pockets. It's such a sad and and immoral and it enrages me that that it's that it's money and capitalism that has truly is is going to be the thing that that kills our planet. 
And I don't know how you walk, walk that back. Mm -hmm. Um, especially because it's these people that are, we were recently in DC and talking about the upcoming farm bill, the 2023 farm bill, and all of these, all of these ways that we could shift the farm bill to, to, to solve a lot of these problems, to solve the water pollution issues, to solve the, the issues with the CAFOs, um, and to increase plant-based food production. And it's such a steep uphill battle to get these things across because these corporations are so powerful mm-hmm. and they don't care. They have a bottom line. They have, they're on a growth model, you know, they want to survive too, but in the process of their survival of these big animal agriculture corporations, the, the planet dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, you're right. It's going to be really hard to walk a lot of that back, but I think that, you know, we're all here talking about this because we do have a, we do have hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go to my grave with hope. Um, I feel like I have to. And I think the fact of the matter is, you know, if we as a species are wiped off the planet here sometime in the next, you know, hundred to 200 years, um, it will ultimately be a gift to the planet. So I can, I can kind of reconcile it that way a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a dark sad thing to to imagine but it's also kind of what we're up against. But what my hope is that that kind of lights a fire under people to want to make decisions, make changes, stop eating meat, buy electric cars, fly less, um support support groups that are trying to spread this ideology and to really shift our lives and our perspective into making this the number one goal. Yeah. I mean, I will just throw out there. Uh, it is, Lindsay, to your point, it is horrifying and sad that climate change has become a partisan issue. What I would say is that opinions about climate change is partisan. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen in Texas, you know, where where you are, you haven't had a day below 100 degrees in the last 35 days. Mm-hmm. And Florida is running out of water and entire, you know, like, like towns are being wiped off the face of the earth with increasingly strong hurricanes on and on again. So like climate change itself, oddly, ironically, is actually decimating red states way more than blue states. You know, blue states are bearing the brunt of it a little bit, but like you look at what's happening in the, you know, in the Gulf, in Florida, in Texas, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it's ironic and sad and terrible that people like DeSantis or Greg Abbott are focusing on drag queens mm-hmm. and Bud Light and banning LGBTQ AI books from public libraries and calling. I mean, DeSantis recently called climate change a left wing issue. And I just wonder why the Democrats aren't asking the simple question. Yeah. What about the thousands of people whose homes were destroyed in the last giant hurricane? How is that a left-wing issue? Like, I'm assuming some Republicans have had their homes destroyed by climate change. Shouldn't like how are the how are the Republicans still getting away with denying science and consequences? It's mind-boggling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot a little bit here. 
Um, so one of your episodes of your podcast, you guys talk about anxiety. And, you know, one of the things that in my research, Moby, uh, of you is I'm just absolutely so impressed with how vulnerable you make yourself, how open you are with everything that's happened in your life. And you, in this episode, you talk about how you started getting pan attacks. I think the first one was at seven when your teacher asked you to draw a picture of an elephant or something, right? And you got overwhelmed. But these have like, you've had them throughout your life. What, um, what are some coping mechanisms that you guys talked about in that episode or that you have? Uh, because I think that I've met more people in the last three, four or five years, especially since COVID, that are dealing with anxiety and panic, panic attacks. And these are real issues. Yeah. I mean, sad. There's certain things I'm an expert in and I take no pride or happiness in being an expert in them. Like I'm an expert in how to shut down a restaurant. I'm an, <laughs> I'm an expert how to shave my head because I don't have hair growing on the top of my head. Like certain things that I wish I didn't know <laughs> so well. Um, I'm an expert on how not to be crippled by insomnia. But one of the things, sadly, I'm an expert on that I wish I knew nothing about is how to deal with panic and how to deal with anxiety. Like I take no pride or joy in being an expert on panic attacks, but because I've been dealing with them for such a long time, I have figured out quite a lot. I mean, like I, I wouldn't even know where to start in terms of how to best deal with them. Cause there's so many wonderful ways from cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR and general talk therapy and some medications. I won't criticize medications cause those can be lifesavers for people, mm -hmm. but then, you know, avoiding, stim you know like like i love caffeine but try to avoid caffeine especially afternoon um and also as we know there is a correlation between anxiety and general physical health like people who exercise a lot people who eat incredibly well and have like whole food vegan diets or plant-based diets tend to just simply have less anxiety than the general public because their bodies are less stressed and uh I mean, also, one thing I will say, like, if someone came to me and said they're having panic attacks, the first thing anyone can do that's surprisingly easy is breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. And it won't solve them long term, but you, as the Dalai Lama said, you can't really have a panicking brain in a calm body. And I would say, like, you know, box breathing, which is like, you know, what the military teaches soldiers in order to be less anxious is you breathe in for a count of six or eight, hold for a count of six or eight, exhale for a count of six or eight, and then maybe hold your breath out, you know, after the exhale for six and just keep doing that. And eventually anxiety will wane. I, the last thing I'll say about that is of course, to, to be relatively free of anxiety, I think everyone needs to develop a toolbox of skill sets but I do find that like breathing exercises can be like the first line of defense in addressing and quasi ameliorating anxiety. How much, how much has music helped you to reduce anxiety? Cause I know that you like, you play the drums just about every day, right? It's kind of therapy. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing music since I was nine and I, of course, I'm in love with playing music and listening to music and recording music, 
But about 20 years ago, I started working with a neuroscientist called Oliver Sacks and his partner in neuroscience, Dr. Connie Tomeno. They have an organization called the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And through working with them, they've used diagnostic tools like fMRIs and PET scans and, you know, all sorts of blood work to basically prove and demonstrate that music isn't just fun. Music isn't just beautiful. It's a profound healing modality. Like, mm. I mean, I don't want to get too nerdy, but it decreases stress hormones. Uh, it promotes neurogenesis, especially in the hippocampus. So music it, it is a, a proven remarkable way of addressing anxiety, addressing depression. And the funny thing with that, and I'm almost going to compare it to veganism is in a weird way. We don't have to convince people to care about animals. They already care about animals. We just have to say to them, like extend it one step and stop hurting animals, stop eating them. The same thing with music. Everybody already knows that music is powerful. There's an extra layer of power when you recognize that it is a proven uh, empirically supported healing modality. Yeah, and is and is didn't you recently uh, produce come out with Ambient Twenty Three? I've yeah, I started making ambient music a long time ago, inspired by Brian Eno. But about fifteen years ago, I started making ambient music just for myself. And at some point, I realized I had dozens of hours of ambient music that I was using to help me sleep, to help me meditate when I did yoga. And I thought, why not start releasing it for free? And so I've released a bunch of longer ambient albums that I've made for myself in the hope that other people might find them and, you know, be able to be less anxious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in, I think it's, I'm, I'm trying to remember here. Um, it was in, let me think, I think it was in the punk rock vegan movie that you did within the last probably two years. You, let people know what it means to be straight edge. And I want you to let our listeners know what it is to be straight edge. But I also have a question for you. Are Lindsay and I straight edge or, or, <laughs> or, or, or no way? <laughs> well, so straight edge, it depends who you talk to. Uh, there's gentle straight edge and then there's militant straight edge. I mean, there have been in the history, in the, the, the 40 or 50 years that straight edge has existed, there've been some very militant people who have very aggressively tried to punish people who are not straight edge, which clearly that's not such a great approach. Straight edge at its most basic is clean living. Mm. You know, it's sobriety, it's veganism, it's self-care and it's, you know, being, you know, looking after others as well. And so to that end, I think of myself as straight edge. It was sort of invented by Ian Mackay from Minor Threat. Um, but it's basically the idea of you're given a body, you're given a brain, try not to hurt it, try not to pollute it and be respectful of yourself and respectful of others. So uh, if, in terms of you guys being straight edge, <laughs> if uh, some militant straight edge people might take issue with anyone who drinks alcohol um, or who takes mind altering substances, you know what I'm, I, the only reason I don't drink is cause I'm an insane bottomed out alcoholic who can't drink <laughs> and actually be alive. So yeah. 
I don't know. Some militant people might not be willing to consider you guys as straight edge, but I'm like, you know what? You're vegans and you're using your talent and intelligence to try and make the world a better place. So even if you're not straight edge, maybe you're better than straight edge. Yeah. Lindsay, I think we're, we're, I think we're straight edge. I'm definitely not straight edge, uh, but I do value the movement and I think it's beautiful. And I would be straight edge if I didn't enjoy the occasional like glass of natural wine with, you know, a fried cauliflower. (laughs) (laughs) Moby, so you're part of this cult of sobriety. You've been, been part of that for about 15 years. Do you ever have any pull to want to do any drugs or any alcohol again, or do you feel like that's behind you or is it ever behind you? you? It's so interesting because I mean, it's a dangerous thing to say. And if anyone's in a 12 step program and they hear me say this, they might be scared at what I'm about to say, but like I haven't been tempted to drink or do drugs in at least 12 or 13 years. Like it's similar to meat and dairy. Like I haven't, been tempted by meat or dairy since the late 80s and as you know it like the longer you go without something especially if you've given up something for very compelling rational good reasons time passes and you just simply don't think about it anymore so it alcohol and drugs it never crosses my mind and i hope that continues to be the case because it's really nice being alive and being healthy and not being tempted to go out and be a drunk drug addicted idiot. Like I was, <laughs> you guys, like, had when I hear Lindsay, <laughs> like when I hear Lindsay say, like she enjoys a glass of wine, there is something that alcoholics will never understand. <laughs> and it's best summed up with something I said to someone after I got sober, uh, I was out to dinner with some friends this is like a year after i got sober and they they all ordered drinks and none of them finished their drinks and i remember getting kind of mad at them and i was like you guys aren't alcoholics why aren't you drinking more (laughs) and i said if i wasn't an alcoholic i would be drunk every day of my life and i kind of started (laughs) laughing i was like wow i guess i've just proven to myself that i'm an alcoholic because non-alcoholics don't tend to think that way yeah. Why, why do you think so much of this culture society is so attracted to drugs and alcohol? Wow. I mean, the, 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 my glib answer is because obviously alcohol and drugs are fantastic. Like <laughs> I didn't become an alcoholic and a drug addict because I disliked them. I loved them way too much. Uh, mm. You know, It's just, and obviously, and sorry, I know I'm just rambling on way too much. I really feel like I'm talking over you guys and I apologize for that. But I will say there is such a sub, like a current within our species and culture where we love being removed from our quotidian existence, whether that's through Oh, wait, can, can I stop you for a sec? What? So your vocabulary is off the charts insane. What was that word you used? Accordion? Oh, was it? <laughs> I wish I'd used accordion. That's way better. <laughs> Our accordion existence. That's funny. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm more. What, accordion existence is a much better expression. I meant quotidian existence. Uh, what quotidian does that mean? Daily, it's a it's a fancy okay. way of saying saying daily existence, like the restaurant Pan Quotidian. Well, 
so how, how do you have such a vocabulary? Do you just, are you a voracious reader? Yeah, I, I uh, when I got sober and I started going to AA meetings, I realized so many people in 12-step meetings, their first addiction was books and reading. You just kept hearing this, like people who were like five years old, six years old, discovered books and like started compulsively reading. And then a few years later, discovered alcohol and drugs. So yeah, I've been an obsessive reader since I, I maybe four years old or five years old. Well, it shows. Way to be. Awesome. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry. You were answering the question about... Uh, <laughs> Why people oh, yeah. turn to drugs and alcohol. Oh, just that I think the hardest thing for any of us to do, and the hardest thing for any, almost anybody to do is to sit with reality as it currently is presenting itself. Yeah. And I know that's true for me. Like, just imagine sitting for 10 minutes, not even meditating, just sort of being present with what is. And it's so hard. Like, I want to, like, play with my phone, read a book, listen to some music, jump around, write something, like, be distracted in some ways. And some of those distractions are wonderful. And I truly love them. But obviously, as a species, we love anything that prevents us or takes us out of this accordion existence. <laughs> Beautiful. Way to bring it back home. I also think that people don't like it is not stressed in our upbringing enough to uh, develop coping mechanisms for difficult feelings or difficult situations or things that we don't understand. And our feelings have become unmanageable. And so anything that can help us manage that feeling other than some sort of habit or internal work there's something outside of you that you can go buy at the store for $12 that for, you know, an hour lessens the discomfort of being a human in the world, which is inherently a very uncomfortable thing. So I think that like, you know, I watch, I've talked, I've told the story before, but I had these two friends, Cassie and Christy, who are raising a little girl right now. And one day we were at their house and uh, something was happening and the baby was getting uncomfortable. This baby was probably a year and a half old at this point. And they go, okay, what do we do when we start to feel uncomfortable? And this little baby, a year and a half old, sits back in her high chair and starts taking deep breaths. Wow. And I, I don't, I like sometimes I, that doesn't even occur to me. Mm-hmm as like a woman I, in her thirties. And I'm I like, wow, this- Lindsay, I thought you were going to say she sat back and started like looking at cartoons on her iPad. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I have seen her do that before, but no, in this moment she sits back and she just starts taking deep breaths and starts to be able to like self soothe. And I think most wow. people don't know how to do that. I mean, I'm still learning how to do that in a way, how to self soothe when I'm dealing with uncomfortable feelings. And I think that a lot of people will just turn to booze or drugs because they're easy and they're quick and it doesn't take any work really. Yeah. Yeah. Booze, drugs, and, and of course phones. I mean, I'm phone discipline is one of the, to state the obvious, one of the hardest things because it's always there and it's always going to deliver something new and something engaging. It's like, I, I, one of the things I'm proud of is I've been, I've had to train myself to have good phone discipline where I only look at social media for 10 minutes a day in the morning. Wow. And it's really hard because Lindsay, Mm -hmm. to your point, like when I'm feeling uncomfortable in the middle of the day, like 
I want to open Instagram and look at some pictures of cute animals or look at TikTok and look at videos of people in Alabama punching each other on a dock. I want to <laughs> you know, like, there's always something there and it's really hard to be like, okay, no, I can't, like, I've got this discipline and I'm going to stick with it. And it's, but yeah, sitting with what is, is arguably one of the single hardest things any of us can do, at least for me. So does, does that mean that you are a, do you meditate? Not as much as I'd like to, but yeah, I mean, over the last 20 some odd years, I've learned a ton of different meditation practices and they're all there, you know, whether it's a Vipassana, whether it's mindful, I mean, mindfulness and Vipassana are sort of the same thing, um, you know, different meditations from different traditions and some of them are really fun some of them are very insightful some of them are just calming mm -hmm. but there it's it's almost the thing of like and, and i don't know if this is your guys experience the more i need the meditation the less likely i am to do it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so i've like i said i've listened to several of your of your podcasts and i listened to the one on your friend, Lindsay, Rachel, who's the exorcist. Yes. And that was really spooky, especially at 10 minutes, right? When the audio did something really freaky. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, the, the conversation around entities and demons and spirits. Um, and I'm just wondering if, and then Moby, you know, you had your experience when you were younger, right? Uh, at the place, that house you used to play at. Did it burn down uh, where you heard somebody calling your name, but you, it, it was a, it was in a nice way, right? Not in a dangerous way. Um, but, but my point is like you're the podcast. I was fascinated by that episode because I think that a lot of us want to know, is there something else out there like this? And I, yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> as much as a loudmouth I am, I would not even begin to know how to answer that because I, when we were talking to Rachel, I just kept having this thought like, because she talks about these demons and these entities in a very literal way. Yeah. And I just don't know, like, is it literal? Is it energy? Is it how much of it is just going on in our own brain? I personally... I'm completely agnostic except for a few experiences I've had. But again, I don't know what the truth of those experiences are. I'm a, I'm an unreliable witness. So I personally, I just have no idea. Well, it was interesting to me when you, uh, you got that poltergeist book. And then the first story was on the burned down old, I think it was barn where you used to play. It was so, yeah, it was. And it was very disconcerting. Um, so because the people who are listening, so I'll, I'll just quickly recount it. So basically, <laughs> when I was nine and 10 years old, I lived in Stratford, Connecticut. And when I lived on Elm Street, I think it was 1565 Elm Street. And down the street from us was this big, empty area adjacent to the Shakespeare Theater. And my friends and I used to play there. And it was, it was basically the foundation of a house that had burned down. And when we were living in this house in Stratford, after I started playing there, I started, I would go home and I would hear my name being whispered. 
very clearly, not in, in like a vi- but it didn't scare me, which I talked about this in the podcast. What was so weird, everything scared me. For some reason, hearing a disembodied voice whispering my name didn't scare me. Like almost everything else in the world did, but not this. And while we were living in the house, a bunch of strange things happened. Like there was, you know, plates would fly off tables when this entity or whatever it was wasn't happy with someone it would let like stuff happen uh it potentially saved our lives by waking my mom up as our house was filling with carbon monoxide lots of stuff mm. and whether anybody believes me or not doesn't really matter but then i never talked about this with anyone and a couple of years later as i talked about in the podcast sorry for repeating what's in the, our podcast i bought a book about poltergeists and the first story in the book was based on this house that had burned down down the street. Yeah. And here's where it gets, that's weird enough, but it gets especially weird as I ran into the living room and I said, mom, I've got this book on poltergeist. The first story happened down the street in Stratford from where we lived. And I said, and it's so strange. Like when I, I never told you, but when I lived in that house, I would hear my name being whispered and my mom turned white as a ghost. And she said, I used to hear your name being whispered too. I just, she just never told me because she didn't want to scare me. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So so I still don't know what to make of that. Mm. And if someone came to me and said, I don't believe it, I'm like, I don't care. Well, and you also, (laughs) and, 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 and then part of that story too, if I remember from the podcast, is there was a man that came into the house and somehow a, either a ghost of you or you somehow presented itself and the, the, the guy went away. Yeah, my mom was dating a guy named Al who worked at a gas station. She had really good taste in guys. And she was trying to break up with him. And it late at night, like two in the morning, he pulled out a carving knife and was about to stab her because he would come by with guns. He was very unhinged, doing tons of drugs. And he was, according to her, he was about to kill her. And this was where it gets super weird. And I have no idea what the truth of it is. She said, I showed up in the kitchen, but I have no recollection. She said, I just showed up. And she, I, it's like, and according to her, I materialized. And again, I know that sounds insane. I don't know what the truth of it is. Maybe I heard a noise and walked downstairs and they didn't notice me. But she said, it freaked him out so much. Six foot five, Hell's Angels, Al, who collected guns and was about to kill her. He threw the knife down, ran away, and would never set foot in the house again. So the whole thing was there. I again, I don't know what the truth of any of this might be, but it certainly was um, interesting. What's What's the name of the song that you did that is uh, part of Stranger Things? When I When it's cold, I want to die. When it's cold, I'd like to die. Yeah, it's cold. I'd like to die. So. I don't know who listening has seen Stranger Things or not, but it kind of made the rounds about hmm, four years ago. And there's, I think there's four seasons. Mike, I have three kids, Moby and Lindsay. They can't get enough of Stranger Things. And when I told them that, you know, Moby's got this song and I played it for them and they were like, oh, yeah, that was in uh, season one when Hopper. Oh, see, see, it's actually, sorry, sorry to jump in, but yeah self-involvedly they used it twice it's in season one for about a minute but it's in season four in the 
the final episode of season four, they play pretty much the whole song and it's emotionally so intense. I don't know, Lindsay. Ugh. So intense. It, I was yeah. shocked. It was so, because I, I don't remember if I knew that that was going to happen mm-hmm. before I watched the episode or not, but it was, it's the most, it's like this character has this moment and it's so emotional and you just can't, but it's, it's deep and amazing. And I, I, I love that they yeah. use that song. I think the song is perfect. Yeah. for that moment. Yeah. How did, I mean, that's just, did they come to you Moby and say, Hey, can we use this song? How does that work? Uh, I didn't, I don't control my music. So I didn't even know they were going to do that. Huh. Um, I was watching stranger things season four and all of a sudden it started playing. I was like, Oh cool. They're using it again. And it just kept going and it got so emotional. And I had the very disconcerting experience of getting choked up and almost crying listening to one of my own piece mm-hmm. of music. Cause the see it's, it's so intense. If you haven't seen it, I would, it, what it, it won't make sense if, unless you watch all of the stranger things, but basically a bunch of intense things happen and it's very emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, so what about with like extreme, um, extreme ways that I think is part of the Jason Bourne? Is that something where they contact you and say, hey, we want this to be part of this and we want to do a licensing agreement? Or how does that work? Well, that's a funny one. Uh, Doug Lyman, the director, he made the first Born movie and they came to me in 2002 to use this song, Extreme Ways. And Extreme Ways was supposed to be a huge hit single and it failed completely. Like we made this expensive video, we released it thinking like, oh, this is going to be a big single. It just disappeared. It was, it got played once on MTV, no radio play. It was just like an an abject failure of a single release. But they used it in this movie. And honestly, when the movie was released, no one expected it to do well because it's the Bourne movie. Like these were based on books that like old men read. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah. I think everyone just thought like, okay, it's an obscure movie. It's going to come out. It's going to go away. But somehow the movie was great and the song was featured very prominently in the end. So it becomes a little funny. They came back to us when they're making the second one. They were like, hey, we'd love to license the song again. Mm. And they admitted they had wanted to license something else, but basically they ran out of time. And so it got included in the second movie simply because they didn't have time to license anything else. Mm-hmm. And then it just kept showing up in the third and fourth. I don't know how many they made eventually, but yeah, it sort of became the sort of de facto soundtrack for those movies. And what makes it funny, another little funny anecdote is I was talking to some friends who work at the CAA or who used to work at the CA now, CIA. <laughs> and they said that, that song has become the unofficial anthem for a lot of people who work at the central intelligence agency. I know whenever I hear that, I think of Matt Damon, uh, Matt Damon, I think it is. Yeah. They played Jason Bourne. He just like walks out of an explosion, gets, kills the bad guy. And then that, that music plays. It is, it is so perfect. (laughs) So absolutely perfect. Has that been your, your biggest licensing success? Uh, you know, in a weird way, oh, and by the way, I have an unfortunate bit of information. I have to, I have to go in a few minutes. Yeah, no problem. Yep. Sorry about that. Um, and, uh, 
But in terms of the biggest licensing success, so this, in 1999, I released the album Play. And when it was released, it was a very dark time in my life. Like I was bottoming out as an alcoholic and a drug addict. My mom had just died. And I was kind of a has-been by 1999. So when the album Play came out, no one expected it to do well. You know, it sold 4,000 copies worldwide in the first week it was released, and we thought that was really successful. Mm -hmm. um, it eventually went on to sell, I think, around 12 million copies. But so it was released, no radio play, no press, no nothing. Like it just, it was an obscure record that kind of was about to disappear. And then Danny Boyle, the director, licensed the song porcelain for the movie the beach with leo dicaprio mm -hmm. and the music was used so prominently and this was leo's first movie after titanic so everybody saw it and weirdly it was that license which wasn't very lucrative but the music being used in the beach by danny boyle like that was definitely a huge turning point in the success of that record mm -hmm. What do you have? Do you have like four minutes, five minutes? You tell me just oh, so I can I think five, five minutes would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so you're one of your next door neighbors was, was Paul Rubens. And uh, I take it you were, you became good friends with him. Yeah, actually, Lindsay, I don't know if you know this, but the last time I saw Paul slash Peewee, uh, Lindsay and Bagel and I were going for a walk. And this car pulled up next to us, and it was Paul um, being driven by a very handsome young man. Um, mm -hmm. Paul did like very handsome young men. And he lived – so Lindsay lives half a mile from me. Paul lived half a mile from both of us, sort of like up the, uh, towards Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And so I used to see him all the time, and he was such a kind – uh, I'm not just saying this because he's dead now, but he was just such a gentle, kind person who actually, after many, many years, became a vegetarian, maybe not full vegan, uh, towards the end of his life. Mm. Mm. You know, if you don't mind, I'd also like to ask you about two other people that have passed away. And that is Sinead O'Connor, who you did Harbor with, and then also David Bowie, who you just say is so, and you did a whole podcast episode you and Lindsay did on you know, going on tour with David Bowie and how he's just so, was such a remarkable man. So if you could just comment on Sinead and, and David Bowie. Yeah, Sinead, I mean, obviously like so many people, I'm, I'm going to work under the assumption that that includes all of us. In the mid 80s, I mean, she was such a force of nature. I mean, like this huge pop star with nothing compares to you, but also politically active, engaged, uh, at the time vegetarian, shaved head and so beautiful mm -hmm. you know I, I mean that's like really has occupied kind of a unique place in the pop music pantheon and in 2000 or 2001 i had i wrote i'd written this sort of very delicate folk song and i really wanted to hear her sing it so i reached out to her and we we worked on it together and then i would see her occasionally and i'm gonna try and say this very gently, compassionately, and diplomatically, I was genuinely concerned. Like the last few times I saw her, like mm. there are times when you know that things, things are, when people are struggling. And I just kept, every time I saw her, I just got the sense like, okay, 
she struggled. Like there's a lot of struggle. I don't know if it's substances or emotional issues, but there was a lot of struggle. And so when she died, I simply was sad, but not surprised and just hoped that she found the peace that seemed to avoid her while she was alive. Yeah. How about David Bowie? Well, David (laughs) is, I mean, he was my favorite musician of all time. First job I ever had, I only held it long enough to save enough money to buy David Bowie records. And then in the late 90s, we became neighbors. We became neighborhood buddies. We went on tour together. We went on hikes together, went on walks together. And I just, the entire time, I couldn't believe it. Like, I'm friends with David Bowie, the greatest musician of all time. I'm having coffee with David Bowie. I'm going on tour with David Bowie. Like, it just... Every minute I spent with him, I was like, I'm in the presence of a demigod. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I will say he had been battling health issues for quite a long time. So I remember I was actually, Lindsay, you and I were having dinner at Little Pine when I found out that he had died. And I was, of course, very sad because he's the greatest musician who's ever lived and a dear friend. But I was also in a way happy because he had been battling these issues for quite a while health issues and i was just thrilled that he had all this extra time with his wife and his daughter because i had thought he might have passed away quite a quite a long time ago and i was thrilled that he just had you know basically an extra decade of being alive with his family mm-hmm. yeah wow well what how remarkable that you have had the opportunity to collaborate with so many amazing artists, uh, Chris Christopherson, including, and I mean, I mean, there, the list goes on and on and on, you know, this, uh, what's his name in the heart, Gregory. Oh, Gregory Porter. Yeah. That song. I just, I, I listened to it over and over and over again. Absolutely love it. I know, I know we're running like behind time here and you gotta, you gotta shoot, but you know, Lindsay and Moby, congratulations to you guys on starting Moby pod. And, you know, getting that out into the universe, you guys have such a, such an important message, such a great voice Uh, from the ones I've listened to. It's just so compelling, informative, entertaining. You just have such a nice creative mix of everything. So congrats. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, Hey, let's uh, let's say goodbye for now. If you guys wouldn't mind giving me a fist bump on the way out, plant strong. Okay. How, how? Oh. Oh. An actual. Okay. I yeah. See. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is. Uh, by the way, thank you so much for everything that that you do as well, Rip, and um, regarding animal rights and addressing animal agriculture and promoting plant-based vegan. I'm going to say vegan. No sure. one else has to. And uh, also, that's the first time I've ever done a virtual fist fist bump. So it's rare as a 57 year old guy, I can say like, wow, I've never done a virtual fist bump before. So I, I have to go take some time and process that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. See you guys. Keep it. All right. Thanks. Thanks rep. I think you'll agree with me that it is so refreshing to hear someone talk so openly and unapologetically about their past their struggles, and even their concern for the future. I know that it can sometimes feel super heavy, but shows like this one, The Moby Pod, and so many others exist to educate 
and continue to be the change that we all want to see. You can listen to Moby and Lindsay on the Moby Pod, and I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes today. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Please, please follow and share the show, and always keep it plant strong. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.